0: Hey, everyone. There is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Let's get to the show. Hey, folks. Just a quick note before today's show. If you're enjoying this podcast, could you take a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? It really helps. Or just tell a friend or two about us. Thanks, and as always, good times. This is episode 4 Trying Something You Thought You'd Be Good At. One of our assignments in seventh grade was to interview another kid in the class and then to prepare and deliver a speech about that person. In what is very clear evidence that we do not much know ourselves when we are 13. I remember telling my partner, who was my friend Joe, that I wanted to be a politician. So the visual aid he made for his speech about me was a handmade sign that said, Brown for President. And I think about this little image often, not because I've not run for president, but to remind me that our teenage years are about figuring these things out. And they're not about driving towards some preset end goal. This helps me lighten up on my kids when their chemistry grades begin to tank. The other moment that stands out for me about this assignment was something that a student named Chris D. said of the person he interviewed, who was either Paul K. or Mickey M., I can't remember which. But what he said was, his favorite sport is hang gliding, although he has never tried it. I cannot tell you how much I love everything that's buried in that sentence, which is why I suppose I've never forgotten it. Because we were 13, for Christ's sake. I mean, who among us had tried hang gliding? But we'd surely seen it on TV. And you know what? When you're 13, hang gliding looked pretty damn awesome. And while the world does not offer you much choice when you're 13, one thing you do control are your favorites. And it seems to me that this is the age when we begin to realize that not only are we in charge of our favorites, but that our favorites say something about us as well. I know I've been waiting for most of my life since then for someone to ask me what my favorite sport is, because I totally want to say hang gliding, although I've never tried it. Today's story is about things like that. Things you've never actually tried, but you're pretty sure you'd like them, or you're pretty sure you'd be good at them. For example, I've never actually rowed, you know, like rowers on skulls on rivers, but I have a rowing machine that I like to use for light exercise in the mornings. Okay, at least for the first two weeks I had the rowing machine, not so much since. Regardless, because of this, I assume I would be a pretty good rower if I ever got around to trying it on actual water. And... If there are rowers in my audience, I can assure you that I can hear you groaning right now. My apologies. Sometimes these, but I've never tried it. Do work out for us. I had never written a sports story when, in 1998, I put on a shirt and tie and sat down with the sports editor of the local paper in San Marcos, Texas, and asked him to give me a shot. I knew I was a good writer, and I was a lifelong fan of sports, and I'd been reading the sports pages for much of my life. So I figured, what the hell. So did the editor, giving me a test assignment, which was to cover a high school volleyball game at the nearby Baptist Academy, which is where he liked to send his cub reporters, because the gym had no air conditioning, and Central Texas, you might imagine, can get blistering hot. I never noticed the heat, though, because I was so excited by the assignment. I returned to the paper a few hours later, tie still tied, drenched in my own sweat, and I filed seven paragraphs, for which I was paid $15. It was, perhaps, the happiest $15 I ever made in my life. And this led to a brief but impactful career for me as a journalist. I covered local politics for some time, and then was hired as a sports editor for the paper in the next town over. And while I ultimately left journalism for the perks of the very first dot-com bubble, I can tell you that I truly loved it for the years that it was my career. Which might be why, some 10 years later, having relocated to central Ohio and with two kids in diapers and my first mortgage, I found my interest piqued by a small ad in the Columbus Dispatch, seeking referees for the Parks and Rec Flag and Touch football leagues. Because being a football referee was something else that I'd always thought I'd be good at. Although I never played the game, I was certainly a football fan and a former beat writer for a D1 college team. Go, Bobcats. And truth be told, money was pretty tight back then, and it looked like I could make an extra $300 a month just by refereeing on Saturdays. So I called the guy and I said, hey, I'd like to be a referee. Have you refereed before, he asked. No, I said, but I think I'll be good at it. There was a long pause on the line during which I could sense the guy was thinking through what I had said. I filled the pause by blurting out a few more sentences around having been a sports reporter and a football beat writer. It was inelegant, but it seemed to do the trick. All right, he said, come on down and take the test. As it turns out, I had to meet the referee guy at a bench outside the leasing office of the apartment complex he lived in. Then he sat there and watched while I took a 25-question multiple-choice test, which was, I thought, pretty easy. When I finished, he took the paper from me, stood up, and said, come with me. I followed him out of the leasing office to the parking lot. He seemed to be reading through my test as we walked. Then he stopped by a car, turned to me, and said, you passed. Then he unlocked the trunk of the car and lifted it up. The trunk of his car had been, how do I say this? It had been converted into a miniature football referee supply store. Several black and white striped referee shirts and hats hung on hangers, a pile of yellow flags was near the front, and miscellaneous other referee gadgets were spread here and there. It took a moment for me to realize that I was supposed to start buying this stuff now that I passed and was apparently a referee and all. I was told to come to the fields the following Saturday, where I would shadow a real referee for a few games just to get a feel for the job. I said thanks, shook his hand, and he slammed down the trunk. That Saturday was one of the unseasonably hot days we occasionally have in early September in central Ohio. Nonetheless, I wore long black wind pants for my first time refereeing, because I had never seen a ref wear shorts before. That is, until I got to the fields and noticed that all of the refs wore shorts, and they had brought coolers with their lunches and cold drinks. They were clearly prepared for a long day under a hot sun. I was not prepared for this, but I wasn't worried, because I was only shadowing for two games, right? Actually wrong. Real wrong. Referee guy was there, and he pulled me aside and told me that they were shorthanded, and I would have to ref eight games over on one of the fields. But don't worry, he said. You just need to be the line judge. And I figured, line judge? I mean, how badly could I screw that up? You set the ball down, you call off sides, maybe a hold now and again. Easy peasy. The head ref on our field was pretty experienced and also told me not to worry about it. The back judge on the crew was a guy I'll call Freddy, and Freddy also told me not to worry. I soon realized that Freddy didn't worry about much of anything. His basic strategy to refereeing seemed to be staying as far away as he could from the action. And calling only the most egregious of penalties. Between games, he ran to his car to smoke a blunt, which I know because he invited me to do it after the first game, and I politely declined. I have to admit that by the fifth game that day, I was reconsidering. Because here's the thing about being a line judge. You probably do need to worry a bit about it, because you can totally screw it up, and the players are not cool about it when you do. The first thing you realize when you start to look at football with a referee's eyes is that you can pretty much call a penalty on every play if you watch the linemen closely enough. There is always someone leaning into the neutral zone, grabbing a jersey, throwing an elbow. I mean, every single play. You see something you could call, and then you decide if you're going to let it go. And you realize quickly that calling the game seems to be less about what infractions you see and more about what you choose to let go. If you make these choices consistently and for both sides, then it can be said that you're managing the game. Shortly into my first game, I trotted over to the head ref to ask about this. What am I supposed to be calling? He said, you know, if they're fishhooking a guy in his mouth or gouging at his eyes, you gotta call that. Otherwise, you can let them play. I looked at him blankly for a moment. So he said, you know, like this. And he reached his hand back around his head, and then fish hooked his own mouth and made a gurgling sound. Fair enough, I thought. I can make that call, but it surely won't get to that. Well, it got to that. Quickly. Some of the games I refereed were from the more competitive touch leagues, or more accurately, touch tackle, because while the rule was a two-hand touch to get a man down, there was no rule on how hard those two hands could be thrown. Turns out, pretty hard. For example, as one team drove down near their end zone, the quarterback threw a lazy outlet pass that a swift defender stepped in front of, picked off, and tore away down the sideline. It was a clear and certain pick six, with nobody giving chase. As he ran toward what was a completely unchallenged touchdown, I noticed about 10 feet from where I stood at midfield, having forgotten by the way that I was supposed to be running alongside the movement of the live ball, I noticed another defender standing there, who was at least six foot eight. I can't remember if his nickname was Tree or if I've just given him that name as I retell this story, but if it wasn't his actual nickname, it totally should have been. Tree stood watching his teammate return the ball. Then he turned and looked at an opposing player, a full foot shorter than he was, who was also just standing there watching the play finish. Then Tree turned and threw a vicious two-handed block on this unsuspecting opponent. (coughs) lifting him into the air before he crashed eight yards away in a tumble of shock and a tangle of legs and arms. It was so completely unnecessary, this play, so patently vicious that I threw my flag automatically before even thinking through what had happened. I mean, if you ever need to visualize the term dick move, showing someone a video of this play would do it. It was a total dick move. But here's the other thing. That dick move was, I soon realized, entirely legal. You see, until his teammate crossed the goal line, the play was alive, and whether the opponent was active in it or not was immaterial to Tree deciding to throw a block. Both teams swarmed around me for the call, and I realized I was in a bit of a conundrum, which is, if I call on sportsmanlike conduct, not only would Tree and his team lose their shit, but the touchdown would be invalidated. I had to think. How do I get out of this one? After deciding what to let go of, the next biggest job for me as a referee was how to get out of the situations which seemed to place me in the path of peril. And damn, it was hot. And damn, could I use some water. Okay, I called out. I had him in the end zone when this guy decked that other guy, I shouted. That's not a penalty, by the way, decking a guy. I realized this when the head ref jogged over and shouted, "So what's the call? Illegal block!" I shouted. In the back, I said it like that, with a question mark at the end. I learned that this is not appropriate inflection for a referee to use, ever. I could feel both teams' rage just seething as random bullshits and Jesus Christs peppered the field. And a quick aside here, I learned recently that the NFL now has a rule called the Defenseless Defender Rule, designed specifically to stop this kind of thing from happening. But it sure wasn't a rule in the Columbus Parks and Rec Touch-Tackle Football League in 2002, as far as I know. Which is to say, it wasn't on the test. And here's another thing I quickly learned refereeing. If you call something on one team, and later the other team does something remotely close to what you had called before, then you have to call it again, even if it's a bad call the second time around, because it seems being consistent was more important than being 100% accurate. When you are inconsistent, wildly inconsistent in the case of my first day, you begin to be hated by both teams, and that hatred just builds and builds as the game goes on because now your inconsistency has somehow justified the rage to even the most level-headed of players. It's a unique brand of fury, this righteous rage spilling forth on the Parks and Rec League fields just south of downtown and just north of the dump. Many of the eight games I ref that day have blended together in my mind. At one point... I made a call that somehow made both teams insanely angry, and again, they crowded around me for explanation. And I looked for help to the head ref who was standing 10 yards away, watching this development with his arms crossed. Finally, he shouted, let's play football, and magically. This caused the teams to disperse and line up for the next play. That was the moment that I realized that as a referee, you had to own and believe in magic phrases like this in order to get yourself out of trouble. Let's play football! Because as the day wore on and the sun beat down, things only got worse for me. And the troubles I found myself in, they multiplied exponentially. I began to struggle with some of the most basic of line judge chores, like remembering what down it was or writing down the score. In one game, I forgot which team was which on my scorecard and accidentally wrote two touchdowns down on the other team's side of the card, which was only discovered later when they asked me the score and I read it off to them, and then I said out loud, that doesn't seem right, does it? It is amazing how quickly disbelief pivots to anger, which flies its way to fury before melting down into such white-hot pure contempt that I felt a rage directed at me that was powerful enough to collapse a galaxy, strong enough to create a black hole. This is it, I thought, as both teams came after me, While I tried to figure out what I had done Tree towered over me And yelled down through his yellow mouth guard You have one fucking job And his face His face made it seem like each word was poisonous So that it pained him to spit them out But that my offense Messing up the score Was so bad As to be worthy of any sacrifice Let's play football I yelled What's a fucking score? Someone yelled back followed by a string of profanities that I could never ever hope to capture their depth and breadth here. Again, I looked for the head ref to bail me out, but he was off setting up for a kickoff. Freddie, I saw, was sneaking off to his car in the middle of the game. So I did the only thing that I had left that I hoped would help me out of this situation. I threw my flag and I blew my whistle like a maniac. This surprised the players. Hell, it surprised me. And from somewhere deep inside of me came the nasty, shouting voice that usually only makes an appearance if one of our dogs poops in the house and I step in it barefoot in the middle of the night. Hey! I shouted. I wrote a score down on the wrong side of the card. I have fixed it now. Let's play some football or I'm tossing all of you out of the game. The players all paused at that for a moment staring at me in silence. All of us? Someone shouted. All of you! I shouted. The head ref jogged over and asked, What the hell's going on? Everyone looked at me. Offsetting unsportsmanlike conduct penalties, I said. Swear at me again and you're out of the game. Now who wants to play football? The players turned away, cursing me under their breath this time as they lined up for a kickoff. And it was, in this exchange, that I saw very clearly the person I would have to become to be an effective referee. And in my math, becoming that person was in no way worth 300 much needed, but ultimately extra dollars a month. Before the kickoff, the head ref pulled me aside. Just a technicality, he said. I'm the only one who can throw a player out of the game. I stared at him in disbelief that this detail, throwing people out of the game, and fish hooking, apparently, or where he draws the line. But don't worry, he said. I've got your back. I don't want to say that I passed out at this moment, but I did, in fact, go down on one knee. And then I told the head ref that I was only supposed to shadow two games today, and this was game eight, and I had never done this before, and I hadn't had any water all day, and that I wasn't feeling very well at all. And in the sole act of mercy I experienced that day, the head ref walked me off the field pointed me towards the first aid tent and told me to take a break. Several of the players cheered as I left the field, happy to see me go. And as I stumbled away from the field, I heard him shouting, Jesus, Freddy, I need you on the line now! And I heard Freddy's car door opening as he emerged from a cloud of smoke and trotted back to the field, a blissful smile spread wide across his face. I sat in the first aid tent with a bored paramedic and drank water for at least an hour, long enough that it seemed my return to the field would be more or less useless. And then I skipped out, surreptitiously, an Irish exit to my car in the lot, starting it up and heading straight for home. The stink of so much rage clinging to my sweat-drenched zebra jersey. Here's one thing I can tell you about my wife. She knows how to read me, because when I got home and she said, hey, how was it, in less than an instant, she saw how it was. Of course, she's not a sports fan and doesn't much care for the rules of football, so I didn't know how to answer her as I quietly lowered myself into a kitchen chair. Oh my God, did somebody die? she asked me. And as I sat there, both in and out of my body, I carefully considered this question. Yes, I said. It might have been me. I never returned to referee after that. I don't think I even bothered to cash the $75 check I had earned. I had learned something about myself that day. Namely, that being a referee was not, in fact, something I was good at. And that furthermore... No matter how much you intellectually understand that handling conflict and allowing contempt to roll off your shoulders is part of a referee's job, there had to date been absolutely nothing in my life that prepared me for what that's really like. And as you listen to this podcast, you'll learn about some tight spots I've gotten myself into in my life, tight spots that never quite measure up to how I felt at the end of my one day of being a referee. My referee gear hung in my closet for about a month, until Halloween, in fact, when I put it all on again while I gave out candy during beggar's night, trick or treat. which is what we call trick-or-treat in central Ohio for some unknown reason. Most of the little kids, dragons, wizards, and superheroes who came up my driveway for candy didn't know what my costume was. Hey, Stripey Man, one of them called. But the dads that trailed in their wake knew my costume, to be sure. And more than a few said something like, bad call ref, in what I assume was an attempt to be funny. After that Halloween, I put my one-use-only referee gear into a bag of clothes we donated to Goodwill. And may God help whoever purchased those accursed garments. I've since given up on yelling at the refs when I watch football on TV nowadays, which, admittedly, is less often than I used to. Growing up basically means you get so little free time that you have to choose how you spend it wisely. You have to think through how to use those few precious hours on the weekend. There's hang gliding, for example, which is my favorite sport, even though I've never tried it. See, I told you it's a Halloween story. Until next time, good times, everyone. Good times. Pete Brown says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. If you like the show, can I ask you to take five minutes and leave a review on iTunes? More than anything else you can do, this will really help get these stories in front of more people. If online reviews aren't your thing, maybe just tell a friend or two that there's this quirky new podcast that they should check out. Finally, you can follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com backslash Pete Brown Says, on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Brown Says, and also over on Medium at Medium.com slash Pete Brown Says. Music in this show comes from a variety of sources. The opening and interstitial music is by Brian Hake, additional interstitials are by Kevin Davison, and the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, as performed by their now defunct band, Delicious. Additional background tracks and sound effects come from the websites Audionautics.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, and freesound.org and are licensed under Creative Commons. A number of sound effects and music pieces were licensed directly via the website podcastmusic.com. Please see the show notes on PeteBrownSays.com for complete attributions. Don't forget to head to PeteBrownSays.com and click on Submit. Read the prompt, click Record, and send in your story can't wait to hear them. Good times. How would someone ruin a grape by making a f-ing raisin?